You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Start exposition on the book of First Peter today. Uh, I have no delusions that we're going to ever finish this exposition of the book of First Peter. If I preach once a, once a year or once or twice a year, maybe about eighty years, <laughs> probably won't get there. But we'll see how far we get. So today we're going to learn verse one, a little bit of verse two. We'll get some background of the book, and we'll spend our time learning what it means to be chosen, and specifically chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So this is 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, the first verse conveniently reveals the book's author and first recipients. The author is Peter, identifies itself as being written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That can only be one person. There's only one Peter in the New Testament. There's obviously only one Peter who's an apostle. And also, very conveniently for us, I don't have to tell you much about Peter, because we've just had a very thorough exposition of the last verse, the last chapters of John, where we heard about his betrayal, his restoration, where Jesus predicts the manner of his death. But then after these encounters with the risen Christ, after he'd learned of Christ from the scriptures, after being empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter really became a very powerful, courageous leader in the, in the New Testament church. Author two books of scripture, uh, one of the great pillars of the church. Now, early church history again holds that Peter was crucified, crucified as part of Nero's persecution. Uh, some historians claim that he was crucified upside down. He thought himself unworthy to suffer in the same way as the Lord, and so desired to be crucified upside down. This is the Peter, the author of the letter. Now, there are some who question whether Peter could be the author of First Peter. There has been a lot written about that. Uh, I'm not going to spend any time on it. I don't find those arguments convincing at all. The early church thought that Peter was the author of First Peter. The letter thinks it is. It, the content fits Peter's life and his uh, his perspective. So Peter wrote the letter. He also wrote the letter from Rome. I'm going to assert today that he wrote the letter from Rome because we'll get to it when we get to chapter 5 in about 80 years and I'll give you the, the detail of it. There's also a good reason to, to think that he wrote it in the early 60s AD, about the time of the great fire of Rome. Remember the great fire of Rome? That's the one that Nero may have set to clear space for his own palace. And whether he did that or not, he certainly blamed the Christians for it. And Peter died soon after that, probably as a result of Nero's persecution in the late 70s. So Peter wrote the letter. He wrote it in the early 60s. He likely wrote it from Rome, likely just a few years before his martyrdom. The first one tells us that the recipients were located throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, if you're into it, you want to look in your maps the back of your book. In the back of your Bible, usually you have some maps back there. Uh, you'll find this area underneath the Black Sea, just south of the Black Sea. It's what is modern-day Turkey. It's a very large area. 
Why is that important? This letter has nothing specific in it. It, it doesn't have anything that's written to a specific individual, as a lot of the epistles do. This letter was intended to be circulated among a large group of people, a large group of churches, including Jews and non-Jews, a diverse group of individuals. So it's not very specific at all. It's a circular letter. Uh, it's intended for Christians, including us. So what's the purpose? The purpose of 1 Peter is to provide comfort and encouragement and exhortation for believers to live really happy, fulfilled, contented, peaceful lives, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. If there's a purpose statement in 1 Peter, it's chapter 4. I'm going to just read a few verses from chapter 4. These are verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous to say, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, Peter seemed to think that persecution of his first recipients, persecution for being obedient to faith, would be unusual. But then he gives lots of direction about how to deal with it, as if he believed it would be increasing. That makes sense if he wrote the letter around the time of the Great Fire. Because that is when persecution of Christians really began from the perspective of the Romans. And you know there was persecution before that. We know about the story of Stephen. That was done at the hands of the Jews. It was really the great fire of Rome that began the persecution of Christians by the Roman government. Systematic, large-scale, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, all of those many Christians who were tortured and killed. Right, so the, the letter was intended to be distributed to a wide audience, a general audience, it's mainly intended for Christians who are undergoing a little bit of persecution and soon will be undergoing much more severe persecution. Now, I hope you can see why I thought this was appropriate to teach through with our young people. Right? And we, we pray this, what I'm going to say, doesn't ever happen, right? But it seems as if persecution of American Christians is on the rise. And the next generation may have to live in the same way as so many previous Christian generations and throughout the world, and even in the world today, live. Persecution of Christians has been the rule, rather than the exception. And so it seems that we're headed that way. So it makes this letter especially appropriate for us to read and apply. Okay? So that's the introduction. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter uses two adjectives and a noun to describe believers in those two verses. So we're going to look at those. Uh, the first adjective is translated as chosen. Uh, it's the first adjective in the original language. It may not be the first in your English translation. It's the word translated chosen. And we'll spend a lot of time looking at that. The second adjective is translated as exiles. 
or as those who reside as aliens or strangers or pilgrims. Of course, those are nouns, and it's, it's actually an adjective in the Greek. It just means it, it describes someone who is alien, who is foreign, who somehow doesn't belong in the area in which they reside. Sojourners, travelers. And then the third word is a noun in Greek. It's translated as dispersion or scattered. Right? So if we translated this very directly, the Greek would read, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen alien dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So believers here are characterized as a chosen alien dispersion of people throughout the world. They're called chosen, and here's where this gets important. And this is where it's time to start paying attention. Introduction over. <laughs> they are chosen. Chosen. And so that means something. We have to understand what that means. And they are contrasted against those not chosen by the use of words like alien and dispersed. Okay? So they're chosen and they are distinctly chosen. We want to understand what that means. That's our goal for today is really understand what it means to be chosen. Specifically, what does it mean to be chosen distinctly and according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we spend time on the words chosen and foreknowledge. Start with the word chosen. It's a collective way in the Greek. It just means chosen. It's not hard to translate. It's not hard to understand. It's used for choices of all kinds. It's used for, uh, like when, when Mary chose to spend time with Christ rather than with Martha's preparations. When the disciples chose Matthias. Uh, the choosing of the seven. Choosing seats at a table. It just means choosing. It means chosen. Okay? Now in this particular case, these people are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. So these are men and women chosen for salvation, chosen to obey Jesus. These are Christians, or more probably the elect, chosen. Really important we understand what it means to be chosen, because I'm going to look at some bad interpretations here, and it hinges on understanding what it means to be chosen. So I'm going to abstract a little bit and just think about what the term chosen means. So for something to be described as chosen, we have to have three elements. Okay? For something to be described as chosen, we have to have three elements. First of all, it has to be a chooser, right? Something to be chosen, someone must choose it. There has to be a chooser. Then for something to be described as chosen, here's a brilliant thing, something must be chosen, right? If nothing is chosen, what can be described as chosen? Nothing. Okay? So for something to be described as chosen, if something is described as chosen here, something must actually be chosen. Okay, okay. that seems kind of obvious. You'll see why we're doing this. For something to be chosen and described distinctly as, as separate, as contrasted against something not chosen, something must be not chosen. Okay? If the chooser chooses everything then everything is chosen, and nothing is in contrast by its being chosen to anything else. Alright? Okay. Use a little example. Multiple choice tests. You love the multiple choice test, right? What's your favorite? Well, true false is always our favorite, which is also a multiple choice test, right? <laughs> multiple guests. So let's say you're going to take a test, a multiple choice test. You, you, you go to the first question, it's got A, B, C, D. Alright, who's the chooser? Well, if you're taking the test, you are. So we have that for self. Now, for something to be chosen, something must be chosen. 
If you go to that question and you don't choose any of the answers, which ones are chosen? None of them. So for one of them to be described as chosen, you have to choose one or more of the answers. Those are your chosen answers. Okay. What if you choose them all? Just circle them all. That seems smart. Right? The, the school kids right now are going, oh, that's a pretty good idea. If you choose them all, right, you choose A, B, C, D, yeah, circle them all. And then the teacher gets it and says, well, you missed this one, the answer was B. You say, no, I, I chose B. Well, what would your teacher say? You didn't choose B. Right? You didn't distinctly identify B as the correct answer. You didn't distinctly choose B. You chose it, but you didn't choose it distinctly. You didn't identify it somehow distinctly from the other answers. Okay? It's the same way here. So to make this very clear now in reference to 1 Peter 1 and 2. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. There's lots of ones in this. For some to be described as chosen, as they are here, there must be a chooser. Who's the chooser? There's only one that can choose a people for redemption, that's God himself. First Peter 2.9 says, it calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So God's the chooser. We have that first necessary element. We also have the second, obviously. We have the chosen. These people that are chosen for salvation. And we're going to look in a second about how God chooses and when God chooses. But we have to be clear, there are also some here not chosen. And we know that because the chosen are described as alien, foreigners, dispersed and scattered. Okay? If all are chosen, then how could the chosen be described as alien? Alien to whom? If we're dispersed, if all are chosen... But yeah, we're described as dispersed. Dispersed among whom? Wouldn't make any sense. Okay? And throughout the book of 1 Peter, Peter does contrast these chosen believers with a group of people who are not chosen. We're not universalists. If it's your first day here, I hope that doesn't surprise you. We're not universalists. <laughs> All right? Universalism or universal reconciliationism, the idea that somehow in the end love wins and everybody gets to go to heaven... That's unbiblical. It's false, and it, it doesn't even, uh, I'm not even going to spend any time refuting it. Uh, you can see, I guess I am a little bit. First uh, Peter 2.8, you can see that. First Peter 2.8 identifies some who are appointed for sin, who are appointed for doom, not chosen for salvation. Okay, now I know this is a humbling thought. It's a difficult thought. God chooses some for undeserved salvation. It's his mercy. And he chooses some for just and deserved damnation. That's his justice. That's the truth. There's no other way to understand this. God is sovereign over everything. I don't want to do my last message from Muriel. <laughs> That's still online, I think. God is sovereign over everything. Even the eternal destinies of human beings. Sovereign over everything. So if God chooses some for salvation, some he does not choose for salvation, uh, how does he do it? How, what's the basis of his choice? How does he make that kind of a decision? Right? We make decisions. We're decision makers. So we know how we make decisions, right? 
we, we have preferences and we face constraints and we make decisions. We go up to a potluck table, not here, so imagine you're in another room over there, and there's potluck tables, and you go up to the potluck table and you make your decision, right? It's a hard decision, but you make it. And it's made on your preferences and your constraints. I like this, I don't like this. That's your preferences. There's constraints. If the person next to you made this, you kind of have to have some of that, right? <laughs> right next to you. And then you have to eat it. That's the rule for the potluck. If you get there a little bit late, there's no, there's no deviled eggs. That, that's just constraints, right? God doesn't face those kinds of constraints. He only faces his own, the, the internal constraints of his own immutability, his own character. He can't go outside of his character or won't go outside of his character. He doesn't face external constraints the way we do. So how does he make his choice? Uh, how does he decide who's saved and who isn't? What does the scripture say? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we want to know what that means. What does it mean to be chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? When did he choose and how did he choose? Well, we know the when. Ephesians 1 tells us. This is Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we'd be holy and blameless before him. So we know that he made his decision before any of us existed, before the world existed, before we'd done anything deserving merit or anything deserving wrath. He made his decision. That's the when. But we don't have the how. We know it's according to the foreknowledge of God, but we have to understand what that means. So there's many interpretations of the term foreknowledge. Okay, and the youth know anytime I, I start off with, there are many interpretations of whatever, there's a list. We start with the worst, most heretical, wonky, bad one, and we go out to the one that is most likely true. I've only got two of them. Neither one of these are heretical, but I'm going to start with the one that is wrong. Okay, there's a difference. This one, I believe it to be wrong. It's also the most popular. Okay, so this is one interpretation of foreknowledge. It's an Arminian interpretation. It's that God looked through the corridors of time and he saw who would put their faith in him when presented with the gospel. Who would respond positively to the gospel? And he says, chosen. That's the Arminian interpretation. Uh, This is a quote from a book called What Love Is This? I don't recommend this book. It's by Arminian author Dave Hunt. Quote, it certainly requires no special understanding to accept that these scriptures mean, one, that God in his omniscience has foreknown from eternity past who, when convicted of sin and drawn by his Holy Spirit, would willingly respond to the gospel. And two, that on the basis of that foreknowledge, he predestined or elected those particular persons to special blessings. End quote. You've heard that view. Uh, Jim actually shared that view a few weeks ago when he was trying to steal the thunder from this message, which he almost always does. Okay? That's the view. It's the popular view. There's, there are a lot of problems with the view. I'm going to focus on two related problems with that view. One is how much it reads into the term foreknowledge. Okay? What's the basis of God's choice? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge just means prior knowledge. That's all the word means, prior knowledge. To get this interpretation, you have to shoehorn into that term. Foreknowledge, a specific type. Foreknowledge that a person would respond positively to the gospel with no interference of any kind from God the Father. That's what you have to shoehorn into that word. It just means prior knowledge. Okay? 
As far as the word goes itself, it could just as easily mean that, that God would know that they liked the Ultra Raiders, and that's how he based his choice. Right? That would be a good way, it's not, but it's not in there. It could be that they like the color blue, they know how to play the flute, they like sitting in a gym. You don't know. Once you begin to get, feel free to impart into a word specific meaning, it's fair game. You have any interpretation you want. And so that's no way to interpret scripture. There's a bigger problem with that interpretation. Think about it again for a second. God looks through the corridors of time and he sees who will respond positively to the gospel. Then what does he do? He doesn't choose them. They chose him. Alright? He just records it. Oh, good. <laughs> That's not choosing. See? That interpretation makes God out to be a bookkeeper, right? an accountant, a record keeper. Oh, good. So and so, so and so, and so and so. I'll call them chosen. I didn't choose them, but I'll call them chosen. Right? That's not choosing. So we went through the whole thing about what does it mean to be chosen. It means to actually be chosen. We know what the word means. Right? If you went through the, this is off the cuff, so if this is a really bad analogy, it's my fault. <laughs> if you go to the grocery store and they just put junk in your cart, and you go through you don't you don't pick it, people, you just go in there and they throw stuff in, and you go through the thing. Did you choose it? No, you're stuck with it. Okay? And God isn't stuck with us. Well, he kind of is, but that's his, his own choosing, right? He didn't accidentally get stuck with people like you and me. Okay? That's the biggest problem. It denies choice. If this interpretation were correct, then verse 1, where it has the word chosen, and verse 2, the word foreknowledge, would contradict one another will be chosen according to some process that doesn't actually involve choosing. Okay? And verse 2 would also contradict verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. It would also contradict theologically verse 4. He's keeping his perfect inheritance. Verse 5, our salvation guarded through faith. That faith must come from him. Okay, so it's contradictory. It contradicts a lot of scriptures. I'm going to read you another scripture. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-30. For consider your calling, brothers. Let you know where I'm going already. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So God chose. He didn't just record the choice of human beings. He chose. That's why that Arminian interpretation of God looking through the quarters of time and just seeing who randomly chose him and recording them falsely as chosen can't be true. 
God's not a spectator in this process. He's the chooser. So I hope I've destroyed that concept. Uh, it's unbiblical. It's a biblical notion. I think it's designed to do one of two things. It's either designed to protect the pride of somebody who thinks they had some part in their salvation. Okay? But more charitably, and I think more accurately probably, it's designed to protect God from charges of unfairness. Right? Now, all I'm going to say about that is this. It's noble of us to want to defend God from a false charge. But we don't do that by preparing a false defense. Okay? God says about himself what he says about himself, and it's true. Okay? We don't make up a false doctrine so we can defend God from false charges, from perverse worldly people, unbelievers, who demand that God justify himself to their satisfaction. We don't do that. Okay? God is just. God is good. God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever he pleases to do is good and right and just, whether we understand it or we don't, or whether we like it or we don't. Right? Okay. That's what it doesn't mean. So what does foreknowledge mean? Again, it's just, it's prognosis, it just means foreknowledge. You've heard the term gnosis maybe before in reference to knowledge, so this is just prior knowledge. So to understand foreknowledge, we really have to understand the term knowledge. That gnosis, how is it used in scripture? I don't want to make it a word study, we're just going to look at really one main uh, scripture though. I think we'll explain this to you. Matthew 7, 23. You don't really have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. This is where Jesus tells us, you know, what they say to false converts, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. So what could that mean? Jesus didn't know about them. He didn't know what they did. He didn't know what choices they would make or how they would deal with the gospel when presented with it. He didn't know that. No. If you remember the story, he's telling them exactly what these people have done. What they would tell him that they have done in his name. He knows these people. He knows what they've done. That's not what he means. So what does he mean when he says, I never knew you? I never knew you as my children. You are not the sheep of the shepherd. You're not the children of the Father. I never had that relationship with you. And that's what the word knowledge means often in the New Testament, is relationship to a special kind of love. And that's what it means here. In 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's not a reference to knowledge of deeds or whether someone would respond positively to the gospel or any of that stuff. It's just God, in eternity past, determining to have a relationship with you, to love you, to know you. That's pretty cool. In John 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Uh, John Frame is a reformed theologian. He puts it this way. The Greek word translated for new could also be translated befriended, or even chose, or elected. So that's what foreknowledge is. It's not prior knowledge or whether or not a person would respond positively to the gospel. 
It's just God knowing us in advance. Uh, MacArthur puts it this way, quote, God's foreknowledge is not a reference to his omniscient foresight, but to his foreordination. He not only sees faith in advance, but he ordains it in advance. So we're left with, what, on what basis did God choose? What basis did he choose? His foreknowledge. His identifying you before you existed, before the universe existed, as one that would be his child. And he's determined to see that through to the end. That we might glorify Him. That's what that's about. So let's step back for a second and we understand what the term means. I said that this book was written as an encouragement to people who were going through suffering and persecution. And that is what First Peter's about. Why lead off with unconditional election? That's really the first meaty word in the book. Is that word chosen. Why would he lead off with that? What would you, if you're writing a letter to people who are suffering or going through persecution to other Christians, what would you write to them about? I'd write to them about heaven. Right? Wouldn't you write to them about heaven? Uh, heaven, right? Heaven. Heaven is heaven. It's heaven. It's home. It's everything. It's, it's what we long for. It's our, it's our place. Right? And so when we're undergoing suffering and persecution. Heaven motivates us. Heaven gives us strength. Heaven motivates us even to the point of death. Right? We can deal with it because of heaven. Why didn't it start with heaven? He didn't start with election. What about the cross? Why would you start with the cross? Right? The great price is paid for our salvation. Wouldn't that give you strength? Yeah, it would. What about the resurrection? It's our power. That's our eternal life. Well, Peter gets to all of those very quickly. But he, he does start with election. Why? I was trying to think about what's the best way to say this, and I don't think I ever got to the best way to say this. So I'm going to say it this way, which isn't the best way, and you'll have to fill in the gaps. What does election tell us? Think about the time, the length of time where election is in effect. Election began when? Eternity passed, before the foundation of the world. And it's in effect until when? It never stops. It goes through the eternal state. Right? And what does it say about God's sovereignty throughout that period, from eternity past to eternity future? He, if he chose you, I won't pick, I'm gonna, I'll say it He chose Kathy. Before the foundation of the world, he chose Kathy. He chose to know her, to be in relationship to her, and to save her, and to glorify her. He determined that in, in eternity past. What would he have had to make sure to be in control of in order to see that through? Everything. Everything. From the creation, all the details of the physical creation. He had to make sure it worked. He had to control it all. All the way up to the point that Kathy could be born. And that someone would share the gospel with her. And she'd be ready to hear it. And then he would regenerate her so she could hear the gospel and be saved. And someday glorify her. He had to control all of that. He had to control her parents and her parents' parents. And all the people around all of them. To make sure that all happened so that there was Kathy. That should give you comfort. It means he's controlling even the suffering, 
even the persecution. He's in control. That should give us comfort. No matter what we go through in this brief time on earth, he's in control of it. His word stands forever. What he has decreed will happen, no matter what. Okay? This is First uh, Peter 1, 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass, and all the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your sovereignty. We're grateful for the fact that whatever you promise will come to pass. Whatever you've determined will come to pass. So we can take great comfort in that, Lord. And I pray for any of us here that are undergoing uh, difficult times, that this, this thought of your sovereignty will give them comfort. And we'll give you glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.